Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. We are so excited today to talk about, first of all, give an update on things, but also talk about one of our hottest subjects, and that's economics. Principally, what are the economic forces that drive self-storage? What brings self-storage down? And where are we in the state of the economy today? Just got back from Utah at the SSA ski conference down there, and kind of wanted to relay the kind of the message that was given back in the summit and what the economists have to say. And uh, yeah, just kind of go over the state of self-storage. It seems to be changing quick. But with that, as always, I have my trusted co-host here. Connor, how you doing? Doing awesome, man. Yeah, I'm excited to jump in. I haven't really heard a whole lot uh, about your trip and how that went. Everything's yeah, just you just got back from busy. the freaking Virgin Islands. Well, Bahamas. Bahamas, yeah. that's right. Yep. Yeah, just north. Yep, Bahamas. It was awesome. My first time out there, so that was that was a good time. Nice uh, and tan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got my tan on. Uh, busted out that good old American flag Speedo. And that's right. Rocked that's it on right. the beach. <laughs> Did my, my morning lunges every day. Yes. <laughs> your wife was so proud. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, she was definitely, definitely related to me and, and knew me and married to me at that point in time. That's right. Um, the kids especially, they, they love stuff <laughs> they, like they did not run away. They, they definitely <laughs> were proud. Oh, yeah. It was, um, we've actually kind of had a, a little bit of a break here in the podcast because we've been all over the place and running around. So it, it, it's nice. I think we're just over a week on this one. So it was getting a little laid out. So we apologize. But Connor, between Connor running around in a Speedo and then me out on the mountain skiing and up at the Economic Summit, we've been very busy. And I take off to Colorado next week, which should be very interesting. I'm happy to give you guys an update on, on that and what's going on. But with that said, let's dive kind of right into it. What we're seeing out there, what's going on. You know, there's been a general nervousness about the state of the economy. And I think that the primary reason is just because everybody's like waiting. It feels like everybody's just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I dislike very much making decisions by gut <laughs> feeling, even though I, I do, we have to, you know, so, but you can only get so much information. But more than that, I just don't like making decisions based upon timing. It's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. And uh, if you look back at history, it's really important to know that recessions are not the norm. That growth is the norm. When a recession happens, it's actually surprising. Wait, we're not growing right now? And most of the time, it's short-lived. In fact, if you think about it, if we go two years in a recession... That's catastrophic. 
I mean, we're talking back to 2009. We had how many consecutive quarters in a recession? Um, I I don't even know if we hit two years and then it stabilized out, but it was a severe drop. It was horrible. You know, millions of people lost their homes and jobs. But if you look at the bigger picture, that is so outside the normal. That was a blip in time. And right now, everyone looking back on that period, the amount of wealth that has been created, how much better we all are off from it. Take this into perspective. During the last recession, Instagram didn't exist. That's crazy to think about. I mean, you're talking about like, there were no MacBook Pros. It was almost another life. It really was. I mean, social media hadn't even done anything yet. I mean, Facebook was kind of just, I was just kind of learning about it and getting into it a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's just amazing. A completely another world. Right. My oldest child, who is almost a teenager, she's literally, what, seven, eight months away from being a teenager, wasn't born. Or she was born, sorry, excuse me. She was born in the recession. Mm -hmm. So she was not, by the time we left the recession, she was still in diapers. (laughs) And it puts it into perspective. She is going to be driving. Yeah. I mean, more time has passed since the last recession. By that, again, she won't even be living at home anymore. For her, when you put it into perspective like that, it's a lifetime, literally. And for people that said over the last seven years or five years, I'm going to wait until the market drops again. You lost a lifetime of wealth. And uh, let me, I, so as we digest this and think about this in this terms, and I, and I, I, I was talking to a buddy who's, it, it's this reoccurring thing. I'm going to wait to buy a house in the next recession. And that always puzzles me. First of all, why are you buying a house depending on timing markets makes no sense to me at all. Because the real estate market homes do not trade on economic value. They trade on perception and what people want. It has no monetary like trigger, so to speak. Yes, there's some where we say there should be a certain times of rent to the house, but that doesn't that's not how housing trades. We buy houses because we need them and we like them. And so this idea that you're going to be better off by buying into the next recession, that worked for maybe a five-year period of time, right? And that was from 2005, actually, four or five to 2008 or nine. Other than that, you've never won with that principle. You've always lost. For sure. Always. I mean, if you look at... Again, I mean, this, the, the growth we've experienced, again, that's a perfect way to put it. It's a lifetime of growth to some of these younger individuals like your yeah. daughter. I mean, it's, it's amazing to look at it that way. They have no idea what a recession is. Right. No concept. Right. And if you are waiting to time the market for that downturn and that correction, and you're waiting that five years, you're waiting the seven years, you're now waiting how many years? And You're so far behind. Dude, and you look at the value... Of How much does the market have to drop to get you back to when you right, start? Right, exactly. That's the thing where it's like even three years ago, you look at the, the difference in values of homes, even just here in the Boise area or anything. You're, you're talking like a 40% oh, different dude. price. Yeah. It's like, what, 11 yeah. 12% every single year? Yep. In three years, I mean, your down payment was erased. Right. Including, you know, it, it's, it is. It's crazy to think about. 
Now, I am not though. We got to we got to pause here because I got a lot of people. You know, say, I am not one of those people that says buy because markets are going up. I'm not a momentum buyer. I don't believe in it at all. And I go, okay, AJ, hold on. If you don't believe in momentum buying and you don't believe in discounted prices because of markets, what do you believe in? Now, first of all, I definitely believe in discounted prices because <laughs> of market inefficiencies. <laughs> We've made a lot of money doing that. But I'm not waiting to take action for those things. A good deal is a good deal today. It's a good deal tomorrow. The deals that I buy today, if the prices go down, I'll, I want to buy more. So if the storage market starts to tank, I'm going to buy more storage facilities than I am today, just because there will be more opportunities. But I have no plans in stopping buying because the deal is based upon the individual economics and the underlying revenue performance of the facility. Exactly. It, it is not the things out of my control. It's yep. not, I am pricing that asset exactly what it should be priced at based upon its revenue and what I believe I can do within the asset to turn it around. So, well, not only what you believe that you can, what you what know, I know like, that I mean, we can do. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you, it's not, I'm not waiting for markets dude, to push exactly. my uh, yeah. income up. And, you know, that's why our other podcast, Cash Flow to Freedom, that's why I talk about cash flow. I don't care about equity. I don't care about all these things. I care about the cash flow because cash flow is independent of market cycles. And, when you make these decisions, you're able to use cash flow and equity and different things to propel yourself during bad times and good times. And that's really what we're trying to understand and get a, get a good idea of a deal, what a deal is, when it is, and how you should. I, I like to say, you know, you don't find opportunity, you create it. So there's more creation opportunities in recessions because of the nature of them. I'm not saying that there's not. The reason why I state this and why this is important, first of all, to give you the frame of reference, because I'm not somebody that's going to say, oh, hold off buying, buy now. I'm not. When I bought a lot of my real estate, everybody thought we were crazy. I mean, even look at my house. I bought it for pennies on the dollar and everybody told me I was stupid. They're like, your house is going to go down. But to me, I'm like, based upon my income, what I'm looking for in a home, I'm not trading my home. My home is not an asset. I don't expect to make money off it. It makes perfect sense to buy it. And so three years later, after everybody else who said, no, you got to time it, the house doubled. It was, you, you need to make the right decisions based upon the time, your cash flow, your financial situation, and the financial situation of the underlying asset that you're going to buy. Then those waves don't matter as much. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, wait, didn't you just go to a conference where they talked about the state of the market and you're not even talking about the state of the market. We'll get to that. I need to, though, before we get into this, I apologize. I stand on my soapbox because I think it's just important that you understand the frame of our investing strategy and our investing principles before I go into talking about the economy. I do not want you guys thinking that we are setting buy signals or sell signals at all through this podcast. That's not what we're doing. With that said, let's get down to the economy where we have been in the last 10 years, where we've come from, where we're going. Now, are we going to have a recession? Of course, everyone, let's just get that out of the way. We all know when it'll happen. Does it have to happen soon? No, it does not. Economists say bull markets don't die of old age. What that means is there's no time frame. This is the longest in history. For all we know, it could go on for another five years. We don't know why economies fail in the United States is because they burn 
out. You get an overswing of economic forces and you get a bubble like where the economy gets so heated it has to cool down. We have not seen that in the last 10 years. It's the longest bull run that we've had in the United States, but you have to take it in perspective to the other bull markets and what has gone on in the United States. The economic expansion itself is actually very mild. So although it's the longest time frame, we're not overheating. The economy is just going okay. It's going good, right? It's going better than it was five years ago. But over the last 10 years, we had three years that the economy barely grew at all. And I'm not counting the recession. I'm, I'm saying after the recession. So the growth has been what I think most people would consider subpar compared to other bull markets. The expansions were huge. When you look at the late 90s or early 2000s, the economic expansion just erupted very, very quickly. We haven't seen that. The reason why we haven't seen that is for a bunch of reasons. One of the reasons is we're shoveling off so much bad debt and we're trying to get out of a hole. So for all we know, maybe we're just now in the last three years have broken even, right? So we're getting out of this hole and that took momentum to gain. And asset prices increase before wages before other things, obviously, businesses have to make more money to pay more people. So we're at that point in the cycle where asset prices have risen and outpaced earnings. And with that comes social unrest that happens in every single end of every single recession because money becomes cheap because of monetary supply, uh, because of the monetary stimulus of the government. And they use their levers in the form of lowering interest rates, which increases the money supply in the market. But the people that have the advantage of getting a hold of that money supply are the ones that are in a financial position too, which are the asset owners and holders, i.e. business owners, stock uh, people that have lots in stock. They take that, they put it into the assets to try to strengthen them so they won't fail, which is what the government wants. Therefore, increasing the value of the assets well, just trying to get them to survive. So the stock market goes because money is cheap. People go to assets and all this is happening. So you get this huge spike in wealth and you get a massive separation of the, so to speak, haves and have nots. Although we just went through the greatest money wealth transfer in the history of the United States outside the Great Depression. So lots of people that were have nots are now haves and they've made a ton of money over the last 10 years. But what that's done is it's created a massive gap in between the ultra wealthy and the normal American. And, and that is where right now our economy looks amazing. It's doing good. It's not doing incredible or anything else like that as far as expansion goes. It's, it's, it's Goldilocks. It's just right. We don't see any huge bubbles. We don't see anything because and when I say we don't see bubbles, what I mean is there's no part of the economy that is really, really overheated. Now we're going to get into the threats. That doesn't mean there's not threats and it could all go downhill tomorrow. It may, but right now it's just very cautious. People are moving cautious. So when you have this increase though, in asset prices and this wealth gap as it widens and you know, it was, it's an interesting statistic because they said in the last However many years, it was it was two weeks ago. I think it was the New York Times. I need to look that up. But they said in the last, you know, since Trump took office, the wealthy has seen their fortunes explode by 29%, right, growth, while the normal American only had 3% or, you know, 
but it was the exact same pace as the stock market rose. It's not rocket science. Those that own assets get wealthy, and those that don't, don't. And when you're getting out of a long-term debt cycle, after it's all over, because of cheap money, assets rise much, much faster than wages. And this is probably the dominant theme is this inequality between the ultra, ultra rich and just normal people. Other than that, though, the economy is doing not only good, you look at the economic indicators that we see, people are spending, so spending has gone up, but savings has also gone up. It's the first time in like 50 years that those two economic indicators have risen together. That is an extremely good sign. That means that consumer confidence is strong. They're out buying, they're out doing things. And you know, we have this idea that Americans are suffering, right? But it's a false notion because we see it in the numbers. The number one expense of the average American is foreign travel. They're traveling all over the world. Americans are doing really good right now. Really, really good. And there's a lot of reasons why. And you can say, well, wages have stagnated. Um, and this is one of the things that a lot of people look at, the wa- wage stagnation due to inflation, there hasn't been a lot of growth. But what you also don't include in that in the 90s, you don't have half the things that we all have today. You have unlimited access to communication. You have unlimited access to entertainment. Flights are cheap. Everything is cheaper that we utilize. So for a no- normal person to live an incredible life, to have a voice, to have a platform, to get to go where they want, to see and do the things that they want... It has never been easier, ever, in the history of our country. I teach a class on economics and finance to kids at a, in a school. My wife owns the school. She asked me to teach the finance and economics class, so I go teach. But I, I draw this conclusion, and I, and I talk to these kids about the life that they live compared to the wealthiest person that's ever lived in the history of the world, J.D. Rockefeller, whose fortune in today's age is like $800 billion, something like that, $750 billion. And I talked to them about how their life is better than anything he could have ever imagined. And he was the wealthiest person that's ever walked on planet Earth. And, you know, they're all shocked. They're like, how is that possible? And it's like, well, he had to take a wagon. His parents, you know, they died. He lost his children of diseases that we can cure by just stopping at the pharmacy. He had no forms of communication like we have. Travel was not only horrendous. Doing it, you risked your life. You want to go somewhere warm, you know, you're going to get eaten by mosquitoes and get malaria. It was just, his life sucked compared to ours today. And that is like middle-class Americans live a much better life. So when we look at the economy, the expansion, it's important for us to keep these things in perspective of how well off we are today. Now, with the good trends that we've now discussed and talked about in the state of the U.S. consumer that we see, we see very bad trends. And most of this is due to political unrest in the form of not just uh, the political side, but in the form of government debt and corporate debt. Corporate stock buybacks have been enormous. Corporate debt has never been higher because of the cheap money. Government debt is extremely high and there is political unrest. Those things can be black swans. Black swans are something that comes out that none of us see that tanks markets, which, you know, recessions are triggered. 
And so we don't know what will trigger the next recession, uh, but it's always a black swan. Nobody ever sees it coming until it does, right? That's why we have recessions. If we all knew that it was coming, it never happened. So what's going to kill us in the next recession, right? Kill us, that's a very violent word. What's going to hamper the economy in the next recession is something that's probably happening today that all of us are aware of, but we don't know it's a problem. Um, so we need to keep that in mind. But when you look at the state of the assets that we trade in, this is another question. So you have this macroeconomic effect, right? What is more concerning in the self-storage industry and what we're seeing today is the microeconomics of self-storage. So right now we have oversupply problems because money is cheap and the economy is good and we haven't had a recession to stop it. You know, I've been saying for the last two years, the best thing that could probably happen to us is if we had a recession and things would cool off and then I'd have more chances of buying um, underperforming assets in markets that aren't oversupplied. Because if we get a cool off, but a market is oversupplied, that doesn't help me because that market could be oversupplied for five, 10 years. And so I have no opportunity there. So when looking at our forecasting for asset performance, we focus on the asset and on its micro economy. You know, we're talking like it's four or five mile radius, right? And then we're under we're underwriting that asset and its performance over, you know, not over five, 10 years. We're looking at really over a year, how we can turn the asset around and stabilize the cash flows. And then we're looking at demand stability. And that's where we get that's where we get concerned today. We get concerned that the economy's doing good. Money is so cheap. Individual markets are getting oversupplied, and that's what we're scared of. The long economic um, outlook, we are extremely bullish on. The consolidation of the self-storage market is going to help all of us out. Everything that's going on, even the things that people are screaming, you know, is worried about, like the trade wars, it's had little effect on us. Um, and if, in fact, if you look at the items that were listed with tariffs, things like that, demand has had more of an effect than anything else. So those things are, we're just not seeing them. But what we are seeing is individual markets being oversupplied. So we're taking that from a macro to a, um, a micro version here of what you need to look out for and markets that you should be looking at and investing in. You want to know what the future is and how it'll perform. Look at the individual asset, the opportunity you're going to create and look at the market it's in. Does it have a supply problem or will it sustain demand over the next five years. That's what you're looking for. Don't worry about, you know, who's going to be the next president. Don't worry about trade wars because you can't do anything about those things, first of all. And two, if you're buying good deals, those shouldn't concern you. Now, if you're buying deals that are good deals, but they're oversupplied market, when the economy slows down, things get very, very, very up. That's why it's so important. If you have a high demand market, and you have good opportunity in that high demand market, even when things slow down, there should be cushion for demand. So you should be fine. You may not be getting your standard increases that you want, but there should be a floor to it. Let me say this. I hear people say that self-storage is recession proof. That is something we do not allow said on this podcast. No one can ever say it because it is a sign of ignorance and it drives me crazy. It's my trigger. Like a lot of people have you know, triggers on whatever it may be. My trigger is self-storage is recession-proof because no asset is recession-proof. And two, if anything, we are probably bull market. Like that's where it's gonna we're gonna get it. 
the self-storage market's going to kill itself. That's the threats that we see. There's these other third parties, you've got clutter, things like that, that will take some space in the market, right? That's going to happen. Competition will always rise. But we, we are probably our own worst enemy, as in we'll oversupply. Look out for that, and you should be good. But that was kind of the general consensus. That's what we've been studying. That's our outlook at the firm here. That's how we identify where we're going. We are not stopping buying. Um, we will continue to buy and build. And we just hope that if there is a slowdown, that more opportunities will present and we can purchase more. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, it, it makes perfect sense. And uh, like most everything, obviously, well, everything we talk about on the podcast, it just hits the nail on the head as far as exactly what we're doing, um, what we do day in, day out, how we look at all this stuff, how it's analyzed. Again, I mean, we're always talking about focusing on these factors that you can control, not sitting there focusing on the markets, not focusing on this, that, like focusing on your business model that you can apply to drive and create and force value. No, if you, I, yeah, if you're letting Fox, CNN, and CNBC control your investing decisions, you're going to lose money. 100%. 100%. Don't listen to the talking heads. Absolutely. Don't listen to the people that aren't practicing. And two, though, they tend to be the loudest voices. And we make decisions off that, which is really bad. It's really wrong. Make decisions off what you can control, what you know in your market and what you can do. Um, and two, don't wait for opportunities to be handed to you, i.e. don't wait for a recession to come and just hand you opportunities. Because there's so many good, um, frankly, there's so many good operators right now in the self-storage world that unlike there's ever been, that if a slowdown does happen, that inventory of assets that are underperforming, it's going to be swamped up so fast. Oh, yeah. There's sure. so much money, so many people that are sitting there just ready to pounce. They're buying, but they're... They have, you know, huge accounts full of tons of money that are waiting to buy rapidly. REITs, big hedge funds, you will see a cleanup of the market. So we won't feel as much as a hit as before. For sure. Yeah, dude, I don't think there's anything that I could add to anything that you said, dude. I, I, very well put. Um, love it. All great stuff. And like you said, I mean, we're seeing that we're seeing that issue here in our area with this asset class cannibalizing itself, you know, and being its own worst enemy and everything else. I mean, um, and you guys can see that. Uh, it's, is it Houston that's super overbuilt? Yeah, you've got Texas. you got Nashville. Yeah. You've got Denver. Denver's, a, uh, Denver's suffering uh, really big. You've got there, – there's quite a few markets, actually, that, that are. And the thing about it is is you can see it in – you, when you hear people that are investing, listen to them. Are they, are, are they gold miners? Are these the guys that are so excited about all the money that they're going to make? Right? You can always tell. You see people that are almost illogical about what they're doing. They haven't thought things through. You'll talk about owners like, oh, talk, tell me about your feasibility study. Oh, we didn't do one. Yeah, self-storage is recession-proof, so it'll be okay. This is going to work. This is going to work. I got it. Yep. Like, it'll be good. That, yeah. Those are red yeah. flags. No kidding. Big Big time red flags. Awesome, man. So great episode. You have anything else to add? No, I think that that's that's it. It was you know this is important. This is something that we will continue doing. We'll bring on other people to do because I think it's important. We get access to a lot of information that others don't have access to because of our participation in this industry as well as others. And so I hope this was good for you guys hearing what we're hearing 
and the decisions we're making based upon them. That's important as a part of this podcast. We've always wanted to say, here's what we're doing. Here's the information we have, and here's how we're acting upon it. Because we are practitioners, we're, we're putting our millions where our mouth is. And um, we will always continue. So we hope, hope, hope that's helpful, everybody. And uh, until then, if it was, give us a five-star rating and give us a good review on iTunes and everywhere else you're listening to this podcast. It really makes a difference. We really appreciate it, everybody. Thanks again. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Thank you.